as we stand and we pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we ask that it may indeed be your name that is exalted. And as we attend now to your word, may we find that we are changed, better able, and more determined to exalt you in the lives that we live. Amen. Do please sit and do please turn to 2 Corinthians and chapter 9. And first of all, a question. What makes you change? It's quite a serious question. I don't mean it as a rhetorical question. I mean, take a moment to think about it. Think of moments when you have changed in some way in your life. What is it that has led you to change? Don't go all kind of spiritual unnecessarily. I'm just asking what makes you change, not uh, uh, anything particularly godly. Just anything. What makes you change? It might be changed for a moment. A decision that nearly went one way, but it's gone another. Or it might be changed for a lifetime. I um, checked on the BBC uh, website, uh, news website, this morning, because it's always important to come to church uh, alert uh, to any particularly important things that have gone on in the world, that, that I may have missed. And uh, I, I'm very grateful that I did, because otherwise I wouldn't have known that Jay McDowell won Britain's Got Talent uh, last night. Uh, I gather that it, because he won last night, he gets £100,000 and he gets to sing in front of the Queen, I suppose, uh, at the Royal Variety Performance next week. Now, which of those two options would change you more? Getting 100,000 smackers or getting to do your thing in front of the Queen? Stop it. What Paul is after in chapter 9 is change. And we can express that change in... uh, Where's it gone? Yes, the, the, the end of verse 7. For God loves a cheerful giver. He wants them to become cheerful givers. But there's a problem. And it's worth recapping. Some of you will be here for the first time. We've been in 2 Corinthians for a long time now. It's worth recapping what we've already learned. Some of you may have been away for a few weeks. Uh, and it's, again, it's worth recapping. I was interested in the way uh, Mike finished the prayers with words from St. Paul saying, forgetting what is behind, I reach forward to what is ahead. Now that's the opposite of what the Corinthians were up to in the church in Corinth. They were really quite happy with the way that life was right now. And one of Paul's major tasks in this letter, the second Corinthian letter, has been to set before them extraordinary contrasts 
between how life is and how life might be. They are unable to live in how, um, how life might be, unable to live in hope, because for them, this world right now is too important. They're having too much fun, in one sense. You get a flavour of that if you flip over the page to chapter 10. I'll just sneak into next week a little bit. And uh, let's see, what verse shall we use? Um, uh, chapter, uh, chapter 10 and verse 2. I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think, here we go, that we live by the standards of this world. That's the Corinthians. They're quite happy to live by the standards of this world. They, we know from other uh, parts of this letter and from the first letter to the Corinthians, they're very well blessed with spiritual gifts. So with spiritual gifts in this world, they're really quite content. And so Paul has lain out before them again and again the contrast between this life and the life of eternity. He says, uh, we're the fragrance of life to some and the fragrance of death to others. He speaks of ever-increasing glory. He talks about uh, how he himself uh, is a is on his way to death, but he's okay about that because he sees the, that uh, Christ's life is available uh, for them, the contrast between death and life. He makes the contrast between what is seen and what is unseen. He speaks of being now at home, but then of being away with the Lord. He speaks of the old creation and rebirth to a new creation. He speaks of weak and strong. All these contrasts, just to kind of dig away at them and to get them to to recognize that this world is not all there is. They've got spiritual gifts aplenty, but they are hoarding material gifts. I wonder how these chapters play out in your list of important chapters that I know from the New Testament. Lots of us, I suspect, would know the the spiritual gifts chapters from 1 Corinthians, chapters 12 and 14. You might not immediately uh, be able to say, well, it's chapters 12 and 14, but you probably know that they're either side of that famous bit in chapter 13. And we know that. Two chapters on spiritual gifts given to build up the church towards its full maturity, full glory in the stature of Christ. But here, in chapters 8 and 9, are two chapters on material gifts written for exactly the same purpose. That we should grow up into the full stature of Christ. But I would bet that few of us know our 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 as well as we know our 1 Corinthians 12 and 14. Because it's about money. And we make no apologies any more than Paul does for taking as long as we have done on on this topic. Because like the Corinthians, we can get caught up in things that are spiritual and forget that if it doesn't connect to the material, then it's of no use. And it's a, a great thing to be preaching about when we remember that Christ is ascended as risen Lord of everything. A couple of weeks ago, I, I had, had you, if you were here, open your, your wallet, wallets, your, your uh, purses, whatever it may be. 
just to say, Lord, you're, you're Lord of this too. And the same things come rushing back at us this week. But there are particular ways in which Paul tweaks things this week. He's said to the uh, Corinthian church already, a little while ago, you really wanted to, make, uh, to join in this um, collection that I'm putting together. So that from the rich churches in, in uh, southern Greece, from the really poor churches in northern Greece, where I am, he's in northern Greece, in Macedon, we can both send money to assist the church in Jerusalem, which is being persecuted and is in desperate need. You, you were really enthusiastic about that, but then you cooled off. Now I want to warm you up again. I want to remind you that you made that uh, decision and I want you to actually do something about it. Macedon's already doing something about it and they're desperately poor. You're filthy rich and I really want you to get stuck in. And the charitable giving, the giving to Jerusalem that you said you wanted to do, will bring you benefits in four ways. And those are the four things he outlines in this passage. Firstly, chapter 9, verses 8 through to 11. It brings a benefit to you as the giver. Because God is able to make all grace abound to you, verse 8, so that in all things you will abound in every good work. He quotes from verse 9, from, uh, sorry, from, sorry, in verse 9, from uh, the psalm. Psalm 112, which is about the good man, who out of all his goodness and his good things is liberal and generous with his stuff. Now, verse, turn over the page. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for, for food will also supply and increase your store of seed and will enlarge the harvest of your righteousness. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. He's not promising that if you, uh, if you today uh, have put a, thousand, a check for a thousand quid in the collection, uh, and if you have, thank you very much, um, that... If, if you've done that, that you are guaranteed in the next week, before we meet again as a congregation, to get five more checks coming your way. He's saying you will have enough so that you can be generous. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. You will be benefited. If you are a giver, you will benefit because you will always have what you need to be generous with. Now, that's not what we'd kind of like it to be, because we'd like it to be, can I just have five more checks or a thousand quid? But you will have enough to be generous with. And I know story after story after story of people in this congregation who've uh, told me that their lives with money and have said precisely that. How often they've discovered that as they are generous, God has always been faithful to them and enabled them to carry on being generous. Secondly, it, it obviously benefits the people who get. Verse 12, this service that you perform, not only supplying the needs of God's people, come on to the rest later, but it is supplying the needs of God's people. It's great. It meets their needs. It's what it's there for. Thirdly, it's actually a benefit, if we can speak like this reverently, to God himself. The end of verse 11, through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. Now, we presume that that means uh, thanksgiving from the people in Jerusalem who say, thank you, Lord, for the people in Macedon and Corinth who've made this available to us. 
But then in verse 12, not only supplying the needs of God's people, but also in overflowing in many expressions of thanks to God, then going on, men will praise you. There is wider uh, praise that goes up. And all that we do is only ever for the praise of God. So there's a third benefit. And finally, the wider church of God uh, experiences uh, benefit. There is the, uh, verse 13, because of the service by which you've proved yourself, men will praise God for the obedience that accompanies your confession of the gospel of Christ and for your generosity in sharing with them and with everyone else. And in their prayers for you, their hearts will go out to you. Well, there's a benefit. The wider church gives thanks to God, but also the bonds of fellowship around the church are strengthened. Four benefits. Benefit to the giver, benefit to the recipients, benefit to God, benefit to the wider church. What makes you change? If I said to you of of any change that you could contemplate making in your life, it'll benefit you, it'll benefit the person on the other end, it'll benefit God, and it'll benefit the church of God. Would that bring change for you? It's enormously logical. Are you persuaded by that logic? I hope you are. I'm not. I hope you are, because it may be that that's what works for you. And that's great if if it's what works for you. But I've had to think about this, and I realise, well, that's probably not what works for me. What works for me is a person or a people modelling something. And Paul understands that. Because it's the person of Paul that gets caught up into expressing all of this in a particular way. It's not what he says. For me, it might be for you, it's great. It's the way that he says it. It's there a little in the English, but the flavour of it is more there in the original, because the original uses fewer words. Uh, Mike, could we have the thing up? Don't worry, I'm not going to ask you to read Greek. Um, Simon, could you go and flip the um, fluorescent? Uh, no, so, no, no, Steve is already en route. Steve is already en route. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. There he goes. Batman. Brilliant. Thank you. Um, all I've done there, that's the passage we've got, and it's in the original. And all the purple bits are the bit, are the, are the, those are the words of generosity and overflow. And just look how much, actually missed out one or two, I realized afterwards. Uh, a, the, 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 it is a purple passage. The, they are words of, of generosity, and we'll come back to them a little more uh, in, a, in a moment. Let's look at the English. Look at verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in all good works. That's what it says. But the translators, of course, cannot get bored of writing all every now and all the time, so they say every. But that's what it says. All the alls. 
are there. Can we click it off, Mike? Thank you, because everyone's looking at that instead of looking at verse 8 in the English. Or look at verse 11. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. And through us, your generosity will result in thanksgiving to God. The language that Paul is using here is completely over the top. And it's quite deliberate. Because what he's trying to do is to take their hearts and break them open. Look at, go back a moment to chapter 6 and verse 11. If you want convincing that the heart is at the heart of 2 Corinthians. Chapter 6 and verse 11, page 1161. uh, Verse 11, we have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak as to my children, open wide your hearts also. See, that what's, what's going on in Corinth is not at this point an issue of breaking some moral law. They're not wrong. They're not immoral. Well, they are, but not in, in this area. The problem is just that they're too careful. They understand this world very well indeed. They are spiritually extravagant within this world. But in worldly terms, they are just too darned careful, too sensible. Their hearts are closed. What makes you change? Paul has decided to inspire them. He uses this language that it's, it's, like, a, it's like standing under a waterfall, this passage. Everything overflows, fills, abounds, laughs, enlarges, enriches, burgeons, gives and gives and gives again. That's the nature of what it's like to be a giver. For what it's worth, I've recognized that this is powerful stuff for me personally. I've been challenged recently by some people in our congregations. I doubt if you know you've done it, but this has been your gift to overflow with enthusiasm for whatever it is that you're enthusiastic about. And it's nudged me to ask, how can I be less wary and more waterfally? This is a plea to the heart from St. Paul. And so it cannot be, it cannot be um, matched, it cannot be set against a logic only. Because logic is always going to be careful. It's always going to be sensible. And Paul is really saying, away. Away with careful giving, careful charity, careful hospitality, careful prayer. Let me finish with a look at verse 14. It's a verse for all of us who are terribly careful, who are terribly sensible, whose money is in very careful pots in our banks, for good reason, good, sensible, logical reasons. 
but who may have become hard-hearted. And in their prayers for you, verse 14, their hearts will go out to you because of the surpassing grace God has given you. Thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Do you you see what he's done? He's appealed to them already in verse 6, open your hearts to us. But now what he's saying is, if you get this right, their hearts will be opened, will go out to you. So if we meet today, not as those who walked in here saying, I am burdened under a terrible sense of sinfulness. We probably aren't, though some will be. We may not be those who have got lots of things wrong, running directly contrary to God's will and purpose. But we might just be sitting here as those with harder hearts than we should have. And if you want to meet open hearts, according to verse 14, if you want to meet those whose hearts go out to you, then become open-hearted yourself, ourselves. Let's pray. Lord, all around us, because of financial pressures in the world, We see retrenchment, we see people drawing in, becoming more careful, more sensible, more realistic. And there are times when that is the right thing for us to do. But we pray that you would deliver us from seizing on this time in our world's economy to justify the character we can easily have by ourselves anyway. Becoming just too realistic, too careful, too sensible, too hard-hearted. Whatever it is that changes us, your spirit, your word, your people, give us open hearts, we pray. And give us courage to meet the challenges of becoming those kinds of people. For we ask it in the name of he who is the indescribable gift to us, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.